Welcome to the Psychosphere. My name is David Sutcliffe, and my guest today is Michael Gay. Michael is a therapist in private practice living in Boulder, Colorado. He has trained in both transpersonal psychology and gestalt therapy, and he's currently involved in a very powerful men's work organization called Sacred Sons, which is how he came on my radar. And in this conversation, we talk about his work with Sacred Sons and about men's work in general. We talk about the ever-evolving relationship dynamics between men and women. We talk about the current state of the culture and how we both feel it's being influenced by our personal and collective trauma. And we speculate about where we think it may all be headed. Please enjoy my conversation with the thoughtful and intelligent Michael Gay. Pleased to make your acquaintance, sir. Pleased to make your acquaintance. Good to see your face. I've seen your picture in all those, uh, I would call them legendary, epic pictures uh, from Sacred Sons. I mean, their Instagram page is just so phenomenal and provocative and we haven't really seen pictures like that before of men in that kind of deep emotional process how was that to uh to be a part of all that it's amazing man honestly the first time it really started happening yoga journal picked up a post of ours early on and um things on instagram just started blowing up and i was wondering what was going on and a photo of us facilitating at a facilitators weekend where we were um, I was taking all the facilitators through a process. Um, it got something like close to 40,000 likes in eight hours. Amazing. And, and, and so it's extraordinary. It's an amazing, wild thing to be a part of, and I think people are really hungry for it. Some people are definitely averse, and some people are very magnetized. How did you connect with the Sacred Sons guys? Yeah, uh, Jason McKenzie, one of the three founders, used to live here with me in Colorado. He used to live with me at my house. They, Sacred Sons became kind of like a twinkle in their eye while Jason was living here. And um, so he was like pulling bulk, books off the shelf and they were creating courses and basically said, hey, do you want to do you want to start something? Do you want to be in charge of the uh, the more emotional facilitation side of things? Right, because those guys are not, they're not therapists per se. No, no. Yeah, so they needed uh-huh. somebody like you to come in and, yeah. and it, it t- maybe that's a good segue to just talk a little bit about uh your background how you got into i mean who you are essentially and and how you got into the work that you're doing yeah i think the the shorter version would be that in college um i was turned on to the old mythopoetic men's conferences when they were in their last days and so i went to some men's conferences with robert bly and uh, robert moore back in 2005 six seven eight and nine while they were the last ones that they really did and so that was a start there. And then I was a wilderness therapy guide working with teens and young adults in uh, the mountains of North Carolina and Georgia and Canyonlands of Utah and mountains in Colorado, guiding teens and young adults who were um, in crisis points in their life, be it addiction or severe depression, uh, through a really transformative journey where they were with us living nomadically outside for eight to 15 weeks. Wow. And, um, so that, that was really the roots of the experiential therapy work, was being outside in the wild, doing things in group with people in an intensive setting for a long period of time. And that was all, that was young boys. 
That was boys and girls. I worked in adolescent boys and girls groups. And then there were young adults, 18 to 28, and also their families. So we would do a three-day intensive family therapy weekends in the woods out there. And then where did you go from there? From there, the I went to India for seven months because it was sort of the spiritual seeker's duty to do something like that. <laughs> yeah. And so I, uh, I went over there and got turned upside down substantially. It did its job. And uh, then I landed back here and en ended up in Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, getting my master's in clinical mental health counseling and, um, and going down that road of, of graduate school and becoming a professional therapist. And that was your goal when you, you went into school? You knew you wanted to be a, a therapist? At the end of working all that wilderness therapy, it's the thing that had the most magic for me. And it didn't feel like the complete end of the destination, but it felt like the right step. And, um, and while I was in wilderness, I was exposed to more experiential modes of therapy, and I was really riveted. There was a therapist in Durango at a program called Open Sky, and he had studied at the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies. Um, and so that's part of also why I came to Boulder was to study at the Gestalt Institute to take mm. things deeper in the experiential therapy world. My first therapist uh, was a Gestalt therapist. Uh, well, not my first. I had a, a traditional psychotherapist, and I started looking for new things. It was in my late 20s, and I found a Gestalt therapist and just immediately had my mind blown. Uh, there was something so, I mean, it's, it's uh, dynamic. And uh, so tell me a little bit about Gestalt therapy and, and, and what you learned from it and what, maybe a little bit about the approach. Cause I, I, I mean, I practice, I, I, I work with this therapist for a while, but I actually don't know that much about it. Sure. The, the, or it's different. It's many different forms now. I mean, Fritz Perls and his wife, Laura brought it over and it really got popularized at Esalen and it was sort of a reaction to the, uh, psychoanalytic and psychodynamic approaches that were much more just talk-based. Fritz and Laura really emphasized that that it had to involve energy. It had to really hit the body. It had to be a person had to be deeply and fully engaged. They just couldn't talk about their life. They had to talk from it. If their if their body wasn't lit up with the energy of of aliveness and the charge that goes along with it, then he felt like it was unhelpful. And so Gestalt took a lot of forms after that. There's a lot of different institutes all over the world. Uh, but the one I went to, the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies, is quite body-based and was really informed by Dewey Freeman, the, the man that's run it for the past 40 years, was back at Esalen in the early days and doing all kinds of stuff um, with bioenergetics, core energetics, and Reiki and folks. And so he was really informed by that. And he's also worked with horses for decades. And so... The equine work really shaped his understanding of uh, the subtle forces that move us and how to tap into them. Was the pull for you originally, I mean, I assume, was to do your own personal work? It was both. It was both. It, honestly, my life's taken on a tone of feeling like it's been a bit guided. And so I had really strong feelings that this was next. And um, so it was to do my own personal healing piece, but I think it's there's always been something in me since at least the teenage years that felt like something was missing in our culture and in our relationships. And um, some way of we being in the world existed that was really vibrant. And, and I wanted to find out how to be that way and exist that way and bring others with me. What, what do you think uh, was missing, or at least for you, uh, in the world? I think a lot, you, if you look back at the teenage years, so many teenagers really burn with a certain intensity. 
there's a there's a whole value system coming online. There's something that happens energetically, maybe spiritually, that they a new thing comes online for them. And I think that the culture is meant to uh, train that and guide that and shape that in a in a very nuanced way. And we don't have hardly any of that. And so for me, that was a really directionless experience. Um, I, I, I was blown away. Like, what are we? We're just beings on this planet. Like, who made this? How did we get here? <laughs> yeah. Why isn't that something that we worry about, talk about? Why is yeah. that a bigger part of our culture and our life? That's strange to me. Um, seems very natural to want to know and be deeply troubled by that question. And um, But everybody's just hanging out, doing their thing day to day. <laughs> it, was just, it was bizarre. It was wild to me. It was a trip. Yeah, I had a, I had a similar experience you know my mid mid 20s you know i realized that i i was i had i could feel that i had patterns that i wasn't entirely conscious i didn't even know what that meant at the time but i i knew there was something about myself that i didn't understand and if i wanted to be happy and be free i was going to have to understand it and that started my therapeutic journey and which you know goes on to this day and but once i understood that there were unconscious forces inside me emotions feelings belief systems that had been established rooted programmed into me i just became obsessed with <laughs> i have to get to the bottom of this i mean i can't live like i've been programmed by my parents by this culture and it, and it goes on today and in fact i feel like there's a lot of people and, and maybe you could talk about this or what your take is on it. I just feel like there's a lot of people waking up to that, like right now, like even this COVID-19 situation that we're in, I, I, you know, all this stuff with, I mean, it's, it's manifesting in a lot of strange ways in these conspiracy theories, but, but what's underneath it to me is there's something else going on that we don't know about that we don't understand. And maybe that's external in the structures. I certainly is, but I also think it's internal. Like there's something in the way that we've all been programmed that people are waking up to and saying, Hey, enough, stop. This isn't working anymore. We want to be free. Do you have that sense of, of awakening? I, I totally that's have happening? That sense. It's definitely in me. It's definitely in all the clients I work with and, in the collective. And I love what you said about conspiracy theories. I mean, I think there is that at the beautiful fundamental root of them is like, this isn't how it seems what's really going on. I have some sense that something different is really going on. Yeah. Um, and then people take that question so many different directions, but it does seem to be happening on a mass scale. I don't know what that's about. Um, I think that's the question I'm intrigued by in general. How come I burned with that kind of question and other people my age and in my culture where I grew up in the South didn't, you know, what is that thing on the other side that, that asks to be known and to be, have us be in a relationship with it? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know, but I certainly want to pursue it myself. And I, I'm very interested in how that comes to be woken up in a, on a mass scale. On a mass scale. Yeah. Well, it's, it's scary to confront yourself. I, I mean, that's my sense is, you know, why don't people, more people do this kind of work? And then there's a lot mm -hmm. of ways to wake up, you know, with your meditation uh, or through psychedelics, sure, sure, through therapy. Sure. But all of it at the end of the day, if you're really going to go there, you're going to have to face your fears. You're going to have to feel your pain. You're going to have to take ownership of your shadow. These, these are, these are, it's not an easy thing to do. And there's some way that I feel like I wish I'd never started this whole thing 
You know what I mean? It's like, when does this end? You know, like it's it, it's a never ending cycle of of coming to terms with things. But but like you, it was just like once I understood it, there was just that was it. Like I had to walk down that path for better or for worse, and I continued to. Um, so I I I, and I guess I'm saying that because I think the people who do this work like you and, or just do deep emotional work. I kind of feel like we do it for the world. Like you can't have everybody be a plumber. You can't have everybody be a roofer. You can't have everybody be a teacher and everybody has to specialize. And I just feel like there's a certain kind of person and this is, this is what we're into and this is what we do. And the consciousness that we obtain, it kind of, kind of goes out, you know, and it affects the whole culture. I mean, I think there's there's that's evidence of something mature ripening in a person. I think when they want to give what they've found, they want to show others um, how they've found ways for more vitality and aliveness and connectedness to exist as part of their day to day life. And it, it's a natural thing to want to share once you reach a certain level of ripeness as a human. How are your clients doing? I mean, I know you can't talk specifically about your clients, but just in, you know, in this moment, I know my, my clients, it's a range of things. There's definitely a lot of anxiety, but there's, there's definitely shit going on. How, how are your clients reacting to uh, this whole situation? Man, it's everything. It's uh, from one side, it's fueled sleeping addictions. Mm. Um, it's really woken people back all the ways that people use to, move energy and cope and keep themselves balanced right through connection and purpose and work and exercise and novelty and um just different changing awareness states um the the inability to do that is causing the rise of a lot of addiction um to substances to to all kinds of things um being quarantined with family and with partners yeah you know that's that's not a normal way that we we exist in relationship, and so it's strained a lot of people there. Um, and I definitely see people on the other side of things that it, it's an amazing thing. Uh, there's plenty of suffering in this world, and there's plenty of adversity. And so the people that do well are the ones that learn to turn adversity into the path of some mm -hmm. kind. And um, so there are people that are using this as a time to transform, to reevaluate, to set goals, to... Um, tend parts of their life that they've never had a chance to and um, and to do that tenaciously. And so the whole spectrum is there. People really struggling and other people really thriving and re-envisioning, um, using it almost as like a um, incubation period to really come out stronger. How's it impacting you? I would say a lot of ways. I'm multi-levels. One is just questioning what am I, what do I really care about? What do I really want to do? You know, I'm in Boulder now. I've been here for five years. Is this the land that I want to stay on? Is this the community I want to stay in? Um, what really matters to me? Um, it's definitely been one of those things. Like maybe I should go somewhere and have some land and, and do things that I really care about. And um, honestly, it's, it's provoking like the sort of magician archetype in me. I kind of want to disappear and hermit it up for a while and read and work on myself and my body. And I feel like there's something that's trying to cook. And so I feel like that desire to make that hermetic container and just seal away and see what, what marinates and takes place in there. 
That's interesting. Well, that's what I'm doing. I moved from Los Angeles up here to Idlewild, which is a little mountain town about two and a half hours east of LA. And I'm all by myself. I don't really know anybody up here and I'm in the woods and I'm, I, I built a little home gym and I'm doing a lot of meditating. I'm working out. I'm hiking every day. I'm ice bathing. I mean, I feel like I'm rebuilding myself for something. And I don't, I didn't know why similar to you. I feel like I'm following my life. I'm just, it's just unfolding. I didn't really know. It didn't logically make sense for me to, to move here, to move out of Los Angeles, but I just had this very, very powerful instinct. And now that this whole COVID thing is going on, it's starting, it's starting to make a lot of sense. Um, however, during these times, uh, you know, you're in the unknown. And I have a feeling that's where we are. And that's where the, a lot of, a lot of the anxiety is coming from. That's certainly where my anxiety is coming from. Cause I've had some bouts of anxiety and fear and anger and what the fuck is going on and they're not handling it right. And this is bullshit. I mean, I've had all kinds of shit come up and really fundamentally, it's like, we're in the unknown. We don't know where this is going. Nobody's got it. Nobody's in control. Daddy's not, you know, it's, we're on our own in some way and we're in it collectively, but also, and what you said, we're all separated. We can't touch each other. We can't gather in groups. So in opposition to how we're made and wired and to human nature. Yeah, I was thinking about the Sacred Sons guys. Like they can't have an event. Like all those guys were coming together. You see that, you know, see those pictures and all hugging it out, and you could see what it was doing for them. And that's canceled indefinitely, you know. Right. And and even if it's back on, you feel like is there going to be some restrictions? And even if it's the restrictions are just sort of unconscious restrictions, like we hesitate in how we connect with people. Like I, I feel a lot of fear around that and also about our lives going online becoming digital you know i'm doing groups and i'm seeing all my clients digitally now same, and same. you know i have a a couples group we did it last night and it's great but you can feel how limited it is and i you know i'm as you know i'm a cornogenics practitioner there's a lot of movement there's a lot of expression there's a lot of touch there's you know people coming together to supporting each other and uh, you can't really do that. Everybody's alone on their screen and it's creating all these limitations. And we're learning as we go and I'm, you know, we're trying to make the best of it, but I feel the loss of something. And I hope that we get it back, but I guess I'm a little scared, you know? Uh, and I guess we all are in this moment. And yeah, like how, how do you feel about all that? You know, I maybe it's because I'm a psychologist and I think about things this way all the time, but so much of the things that cause us trouble in our adult life, um, it can be addiction, it can be ADD, it can be depression, it can be having no boundaries. All those things to me are generally coping mechanisms that became long-term states or traits. Gabor Mate talks about this a lot with ADD and, and other things like that, but they are patterns of coping that become long-term states or traits. And I'm worried that we will cope and that our forms of coping will become long-term states or traits and we will suffer individually and collectively from uh, the absence of flow and vitality and um, sort of natural expression that we're meant to have. 
So we'll, we will see culturally and collectively the same thing we would see in a personality that, that was not able to live itself out and express itself and experience itself. Um, and that that'll somehow become normal and we will get stuck as a culture in uh, these bound up incomplete states of being and existing because that can happen to humans. If it happens to individuals, why can't it happen to cultures? So I, I really see a parallel there and that's definitely a fear of mine. And so I think, you know, being from these expressive modalities that we're from is what would it look like to open it back up? What does it look like to open the culture back up? I feel like we will need collective experiences uh, that mimic what we might do in individual therapy of really moving what was accumulated during the time of quarantine, of uh, reconnecting and reclaiming what got suppressed, repressed, and um, and is just lingering there undigested to help us really hit the reset button um, for our cultural center, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it also feels, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. It also feels like this is the culmination of a lot of years of chaos and conflict and obviously with the election of Trump that just spun everybody out and it feels like similar like as a as a, a human being when you're going through a transformation you you generally hit a crisis and then you go into confusion and I know for me there's a period of time I don't really know who I am <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I know s sort of, but as I, you know, I'm evolving into something new and in that process, I'm kind of, you know, it's like a little kid learning to walk again or you're trying on a new suit that's different. You're like, do I, yeah. does this feel right? And I kind of feel like maybe we're in some kind of like, well, this is the, the, the destruction mode of the event, like the, the all coming crashing down to hopefully rebuild. I mean, that's how I try to put this positive spin on it. Like, you know, and what I try to hold for people and inside myself, like this is going to create opportunity for rebirth and, and rebuilding and these old structures, you know, like I said, external, internal, they've become obsolete. They don't serve us anymore. And we have to, we have to evolve somehow, some way. And this is the event that's going to force our hand. I'm a little bit wired personally to think of things mythologically and archetypally and in more like ceremonially. And there's, there's a mythologist and storyteller, an extraordinary human named Martin Shaw. And in a couple of interviews lately, he's talked about this being an initiatory experience that, that for the first time, maybe in human history, um, that all people on the planet are going through some type of initiation and the thing about initiation is a particular type of space that doesn't mean it's going to turn out well. It, it, can, be, it can be a botched initiation. We can really, really fuck this one up. Um, but it means that we're up against really formidable things, and it really matters how we respond to it. And that the creative potential is there, um, and it's definitely up to us to summon that and to throw all of our wit and wisdom and soul gold and mischief at uh, this current situation to see if we can come out better on the other side. Um, and I definitely feel that. And I, I've certainly never experienced anything like this before where all people are sharing some type of common experience of ominous and unknown and the liminal, like you said, the we're, we're in the, in, in, in between right now. 
And and to bring it back to to the men's work and the work you're doing with Sacred Sons, I have a feeling that some part of it is men changing, growing, coming back into their strength and their power and rediscovering themselves. And I think that's why you're seeing so uh, many different pockets of, of men's work and men's movement and men's group happening. There's something I think that happened to men uh, along the way and uh, something was lost. Men got confused and uh, scared. And uh, I, think, I think there's a call for men to, to rise up. And I wonder, do you feel that or some version of that? I definitely do. I mean, um, if I track it, it seems like there was a couple thousand years of, of shadowy masculine in the world. And that's, that's something that's going to take a long time to heal and transmute. And what seemed to happen is um, there was a shift between that kind of old world male and and a new type of man that emerged that was like quite sensitive, um, quite tender, um, sensitive versus vulnerable, you know, and um, Robert and like the nice guy and um, the pleaser, agreeable. There's a lot more of that in men today than there seems to be in the past. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a step in a good direction, but it's incomplete. Um, Robert Bly said something quite powerful in the book, Iron John where he talks about that type of man as uh, life-preserving, but not necessarily life-giving, and that it takes a certain quality of fierceness to actually be a life-giving human. And, and I think that we've seen the, um, the, the desire to embody those qualities of fierceness and intensity and power go in really shadowy directions. And I think a lot of people are afraid to touch it, um, so we've gone really deeply into the feeling world, but it's still a process personally and collectively that we're trying to integrate. You know, how do we stay really deep feeling connected beings that um, won't perpetrate violence on each other or the world or women or children or each other, um, but also be powerful enough to create and really um, uh, be generative and give something back to life? And so I do think there's like a, a rootedness, rootlessness and a homelessness um, immensely in the masculine right now. The old paradigms don't work. There's not really a new one. Um, so I feel like that's what we're doing now is trying to create what does that new model look like? I think men really work and learn and evolve through modeling and seeing it done. Yeah. And we don't have a lot of that. And so it's a very confused time and a very stuck, stagnant time and a very frustrated time. And, uh, you know, for example, with Sacred Sons, you know, 60 something percent of the followers on their Instagram account are women. Um, same with a lot of the men's coaches I know, you know, close to 70%. So it's a lot of, of, of women saying like, you know, when we go to an event, sometimes 50% of the guys are like, I came here because a partner or a female friend of mine told me I should come. And so um, I think that's an interesting part of the phenomenon too. But yeah, there's, we don't really have a new model yet. And we're, we're trying to work that out and piece it together. Yeah, I feel that in me. I'm, I grew up without my dad around and raised by my mom and became, you know, took care of her. You know, typical story. Yeah. My mom was young and I was the firstborn and got to be a good boy for her because, you know, there was 
life was a little unstable, so I couldn't have my full expression. Had to keep a lot, uh, you know, pushed down. And uh, I didn't really have any any role models. And it's been tricky for me to figure out, you know, who who am I as a man? And, and I started to understand uh, probably in my mid-30s when I started doing the core energetics work that I had an incredible amount of rage, like murderous rage. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, and that I, and from that place, I could feel it's like, you know, like hatred as well. And this was, this is obviously the shadow work. And, uh, and I was ashamed of it unconsciously. Um, but bringing that out, it obviously free, <laughs> frees up a lot of energy because this, this place where you keep down your hatred and your rage, uh, that's life force energy. And uh, we need places like Sacred Sons and, and other places where guys can actually express that in a way that is healthy uh, so they can free up all that energy. That said, I know in my workshops, a lot of guys are, they're afraid of that part of themselves. Yeah, they same. judge it like it's not okay. And, um, and which I understand because they don't, they, you know, as you said, thousands of years of men uh, hurting women, you know, in a lot of really bad ways. They want to tamp that down. So it's, it's a really, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that at the sacred sons? And I assume that that issue comes up all the time. That's the, that's sort of like the, um, the invitation that we give at the beginning of these sacred sons weekends is this is a home for all of the energies that don't have a home in your day to day life. Their life is intense. It's fucking intense to be a human and no one gets to adulthood without really intense wounds. It's, it's a place that's full of suffering and that does something to us. And our normal relationships don't really have the, it's not normal for us to, um, to go into those places energetically. And um, so we wanted to create a space where those energies have a home because I think that's what's keeping a lot of people stuck in that vitality from flowing. Um, and so just like you said, it's in the shadow. And so to open it up, people have a sense that that room is dangerous. Like I can't go in there and bad things happen if I do. And a lot of it's unconscious. Uh, and, and to me, it's like a tool. If, if you don't learn how to use it, you will hurt someone. You will do something destructive to yourself or others with it. It's, it's a side of life that takes a learning period. Right. And, um, and so what sacred sons and other places are meant to do is you get to open that door. We're doing it and we can handle whatever comes out of there. And we're going to stay right with you, not going to judge you. And, um, we're going to teach you. It's okay to put that energy online in you. And then we're going to put you around other people that have it quite integrated in them so that, you know, it's a progression. It's not just the one cathartic. Okay. Now, you know, I'm not afraid of anger anymore. Um, it's a relationship we have to build with that side of life over time and integrate it into our personalities and our relationships. And so that to me is the work of r- removing it from the shadow and from the taboo and teaching people how it's life-giving, really showing that, not just conceptually. I think one of the distortions that men have is that like this this anger when it's integrated, this energy, this fierceness that you talked about, it's very attractive to women. It's, it's, it's actually when it's integrated, that's what I try to say to men. It, it makes women feel safe. It's when it's in the shadow 
that it's scary, that they can't trust. Because if you can't trust yourself with your own feelings, with what's going on inside you, how would you expect a woman to trust you and to uh, surrender in, in, in that way in, in the relationship dynamic? Is that kind of thing talked about in uh, at Sacred Sons or in the men's work, that kind of framing? How do you guys, do you talk about women? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, we we have a couple of folks that that's sort of their main main piece that they come and talk about. Um, Stefanos Fandos and um, Kevin Walton talks about this some, and Kevin Oros. Um, some guys come in and talk about um, relationship and polarity in that regard. Uh, yeah, yeah, those kinds of pieces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, um. I have a, a, yeah, sure. I, I have like a subtle, my compass is like a couple of degrees tilt. And so I'm not full on in alignment with, um, I am familiar with a little bit of the, what you were talking about. I'm more, more familiar with, um, groups of folks who, where it's a lot more like rageful towards women, um, a lot, a lot more like hate, hate there. Um, and, uh, and I, I, it makes me think about a gestalt principle that, that Dewey talks about that, I know these words can are big and charged and we can describe ascribe different meanings to them, but in a working context, uh, power and control, power being defined as the ability uh, to influence and be influenced in relationship, control being pretty much everything else we do when we don't trust. And I really see a lot of um, those things in that world of the masculine um, being a lot more about control than power. Um, and that's one piece that I, that I struggled with with John Wineland and, and David is, is that, um, they've really made this thing into a spiritual path. Yeah. And, and it's the similar thing with Buddhist psychology, that there's something that happens when you take the, it makes sense to do. And it also feels tricky to do. Uh, like if you take the masculine, I've like heard John Wineland say, that like the masculine doesn't need things. Masculine never needs. If you need something, you're in your feminine. And I just think that that's, for me personally and philosophically and practically, that that's not true. I think humans need. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think the masculine in its essence and in its nature doesn't need. Um, I think it very much needs. And so it just gets tricky when you, you take it to the spiritual level and you try to make spiritual concepts fit into the interpersonal um, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it's tricky. And, um, and so what I, I hear in that is, and what I didn't like about David's book, I mean, books is, um, is that women, it was kind of like the feminine is just this intense energy and our job is just hold presence with that energy. And, um, and I guess I think that to me, that's not relationship. There's something in there that, that does relate to polarity, but I also think that relationship um, it is a two-way street. It's not just hold presence and it's not just you get to be pure energy and chaos. I think both, I don't know, it's, it's more nuanced than that to me. And I know it's been helpful for a lot of people, so more power to them. There's information in there that I find valuable, Yeah. but I'm, I'm not able to buy into it fully in some way. And it, it's also with the red pill community online. Like there's, there's things that they talk about certain concepts and ideas that I think are useful. Um, but I, I kind of feel the way you do. It's like, you have to come from a, from a human approach that said, 
these people that are teaching this kind of stuff, they're doing very well. Like there is a longing for men and women to come together because there's, you know, it's, it's been a rough go of it. I mean, men and women are, uh, there's a lot of hatred between men and women right now in the culture. And, and so any, anybody who's making any attempt to try to reconcile it, I'm, I'm sort of support, but what, what do you make of, of that situation that we're in? Because obviously feminism is, it's got its own thing going and the incel, I mean, there's just all these different things, Magtow and, and all these different leaders. And, and what do you think is going on between men and women? Um, is that too broad a question? Maybe that last part is, I guess. When, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, well, how does what, it feel? What, but how do you feel about it? Like, I, I guess that makes me feel sad. There's something in in where we're at, and I, you know, I'm making generalizations here, and I probably spend too much time on Twitter and reading certain kinds of things, so maybe you're not totally relating to it. But but uh, uh, there's a, just this feels like there's a lot of pain that needs to be healed, and and maybe this is this is really the you know what does need to be healed? Do you think between men and women? I I mean, where I go philosophically and I, ideologically is a little bit back here to Esther Perel. Um, honestly, man, we're, we're trying to do something new with relationship and partnership that we've never done before. I mean, marriage and relationship have, as far as I'm aware of history in historically and anthropologically, it's been economic. It's been about property, it's been about power. It's been about commodity. It's been transactional. It's not about like, I, I need to have total harmony and uh, feel like it's my best friend and my portal to God. And, you know, like this idea of having one person that we build this like new world with that's quite magical and extraordinary. Um, that's kind of a new idea. I'm sure that that's happened all through human history just by coincidence and circumstance and people's dispositions, but it's not the norm. And but now everybody wants to find that and we're becoming much more self-aware. So I think that just evolutionarily something new is happening in relationship that's never happened before. And we don't have the wisdom to know how to handle it yet. Um, we're becoming much more self-aware, much more boundary, much more, uh, our values are shifting. You know, the inner world is becoming much more important than other things. And I think in the past it hasn't been that way. Um, people really could exist without valuing the inner world that much. And I mean, no offense to my parents, God bless them, but like they're a great example. And I think of other places I go in the world, you know, they don't think about things too much. They're not that concerned about like nonviolent communication. They're just like, yeah, that's, how, that's just how they say it. So I guess I think that evolutionarily, uh, there's a lot of people that are coming into a desire for a certain type of relationship and level of self-awareness that we haven't evolved to have yet. And we're figuring that out too. So I start there and I try to be a little bit playful with it. Like Esther does like, um, Esther, like she's just like, I don't know the answer. You just got to live your way towards the questions. And, and I think that what people like David and John do really well is they really articulately describe the experience of like not knowing what to do in the stuck places and the, the internal and external ways that that comes up. And then they stand there and they're like, here's what you do in those situations. And some of it really works for people and, and some of it doesn't. And, um, 
I don't know. So I think that we're all just trying to solve that. But I think it's a kind of new thing in, in masculine, feminine, and male and female uh, dynamics. Um, so we just we just don't know yet. Yeah, I think I, I've been talking about that a lot. Like this is a new thing. Men and women living together in the nuclear family is a completely new thing. That We didn't live under the same roof all the time. Men generally were with men and women were with women and we were separated. And even working together. I mean, I heard Jordan Peterson say that point. It's really only worth 50, 60 years in of men and women actually working together. It's a new experiment and we're still trying to figure out how to do it. And yeah, I mean, when my grandparents were born, women couldn't vote. <laughs> when right. my parents were born, right. inter interracial marriage was illegal. Yeah. That's insane. It is insane. And so the pendulum is swung or swinging, maybe, I don't know. But there, what it, there, I think what John and Data touch on is this desire for the masculine-feminine dynamic that there's something in that that is very uh it's beautiful and it's it, it it's there's a purity to it i have a woman that i work with that i co-facilitate with and she's a chinese woman and she carries all of that history with her uh and we got to this point where she just said i want you to lead i don't want to lead you lead and I could feel this place where I was like, uh, well, I don't want to, you know, shouldn't we co-lead? And she's like, I don't want, no, you lead and I'll do my thing. And once we got into it, what she said to me and what she realized is like, when you lead, it frees me up to not have to deal with all of that stuff. And I can be completely in my gift. And what I could also see is when I lead, I can go in and there's certain things that I don't have to worry about because I know she's over here watching over the whole thing. But there was shame for both of us when we came to that. And we still struggle with it and we're worried that somebody's going to say something, you know, hey, why is the man leading? And she, even though at the end of the day, we're probably it's equal amount of facilitating that we do. But it was just interesting to me that both of us carried shame about the thing that we actually wanted, like how we actually wanted to be in relationship. And there was some, there's something about that that's really sad. So I think that's what Data and John Wyland are, are touching on. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really interested in, and is that kind of stuff like, like what's coming up with your clients around relationship and where are people at with all of that, do you think? I, um, Gosh, in the middle of it, people are trying to figure out <laughs> yeah, you know, how, how to do some clients are like really old school. Like they don't have certain conversations in their partnerships at all. They don't value them. They don't think about that stuff. They don't feel it or either the, their wife is the only person that feels those things and they're learning how to attune and reminds me more of my parental dynamics. Um, I think I want to backtrack just a little bit. I feel I feel like a little bit bad about nudging David and John so bad. I think they have a lot of worthwhile stuff to explore. It's use it's been so useful for me and a lot of people I know. Yeah. And it's it's just been a part of rediscovering. What I like about what they do is is that there's something archetypal. And that's one thing that we forgot is that there's such thing as archetypal energies. There's such thing as archetypal masculine. There's all kinds of archetypal masculine energies. And 
And that something about being in touch with that and in relationship with that is important for us to feel vital, connected, fulfilled, empowered. And I do, I love that about what they do. And I'm also about that. I think that we've lost a real connection to the archetypal, you know, Jungian, Jungian um, what approaches were like the, the last people that really talked about that. And, um, and that's unfortunate that that's missing from psychology. Um, you know, transpersonal psychology might be the only place you can find it now outside of the, the real mythologists. So I do value that. I think there's something about connection to the archetypal and how we work with it in general, in my practice and in, in Sacred Sons is very experiential. Like there's some way of saying, if you can connect to the archetype, if I can imprint your mind and, and speak in a way that helps you feel it, then you can move towards it. Um, and I approach things differently. That may be true. And sometimes I do model for my clients and, and at Sacred Sons we do sometimes, but I'm much more interested in people going through a process of transformation that's experiential and internal first. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want them to have an idea that they're working towards and finding their way through the woods. I want them to really start from the center. What's true for you now? Like wh where are these energies in your body? Where does that feel locked up? What's this like in your relationships? So I get really individual with people um, because I don't know. I think that's underrepresented and I think that's a, a way of transformation that we don't have enough of. And that's worked better for me and, and for people. Um, I've seen, you know, we can be exposed to all kinds of um, uh, ideas, but if someone's not coming right, getting us to right where we are um, and what relationship really feels like to us or doesn't feel like to us, figuring out what our individual truths are, that matters more to me. So that that's where I lean is less philosophical, more individual. So. Yeah, that really resonates with me. I mean, I was just smiling the whole time you were talking. It's just, it's so beautiful. And I can, I can feel like that's right in your pocket. And it's like you embody it in a strong way. And it, I mean, I feel so uh, happy for the guys <laughs> that get to work with you because uh, I feel your heart. I feel your strength. I feel your good intentions around it. And do you, do you feel, I know you said you kind of follow in your life and things are just unfolding as they are, but do you have a, you must have some kind of strong intention or, or like, do you feel like you're on a mission? Yeah, I do. I do. I think I spent uh, a lot of time in my younger years, really looking and praying for direction and um, purpose and meaning. And I never, got clear about it. I think I had to become someone of substance before my internal um, guidance system and, and like my spiritual self could really tap into purpose. But what came for me is that if I look at the state of affairs, most of the, the maladies that I see socially, culturally, environmentally, ecologically, um, politically, I mean, they're all human caused issues. And if we keep doing this, we're not going to have a place to boogie. Like yeah, that we, we can't ask these age old philosophical religious questions if we don't figure out a better way to exist on the planet. And, and so if I can really understand the nature of human relationship, person to person, person to cosmos, um, person to inner self, 
then I think that those pieces of insight and wisdom are perhaps and hopefully generalizable to being able to support the culture and the politics um, and the global climate shift. If I can really understand the nature of relationship and transformation in relationship, then there's really something to offer on a bigger level. Um, I'm really troubled on some level by working with the individual on the day-to-day. How it feels to me to do individual sessions and small group work is like, oh gosh, I'm putting all this energy to tending a small little patch of forest somewhere in some part of the world and there's this giant nuclear threat. Like, what does it matter that I'm tending this little garden? That bomb's going to go up and we're all fucked. And so that's like metaphorical or literal. So I feel like the individual stuff is, it's hard for me to keep my devotion there because I'm so worried about where we're headed on a big scale. And I'm hoping that an apprenticeship to the individual will translate into helping support the collective to reshift and reawaken. And, and so that's a question I'm living into. I don't, I don't have the answers there. I don't know if I've got something yet. I feel like I do. Um, and I think I'll, I'll get a lot closer if I just keep going. I have a very similar feeling. I mean, I actually was just thinking about it last night, you know, like it it is powerful to work with individual people and, and to work with small groups, but it it does take a lot of energy. And then you start to think, is this the best use of my time and of my energy? And am I, is this the best way that I can impact the world? And so I'm, I'm also, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I started this podcast you know, to, to have conversations like this that could go out so people could listen to. And, and, you know, and I've, I've also have a a background in media. So there's other media projects that I'm working on, but, uh, it does feel, it does feel like there's an urgency and to me and also a need, like the fact that you're feeling this, that I'm feeling this and I see it in the space. Like I see conversations or people coming up, talking about trauma uh, talking about waking up, talking about like uh, things that happened to them in their childhood and how that's impacting them as adults and, you know, healing. Like these are becoming uh, mainstream. It's like all over Instagram and, and some of it is more legitimate than others. But nevertheless, the conversation is being had and that that feels exciting to me. And and what like what do you see going on in the culture there? And we sort of cover this in terms of a waking up, but um are you, are you optimistic about like the future? No, I'm not. <laughs> You're not. No, oh. I think, and um, I mean, I th- I think, and I I guess I don't feel like I have to be. Like my job is to do. If I really look at it, I think that the problems way more rampant and intense then we're ever going to, we don't have that. I mean, if, and I can be really wrong. I could really be wrong. I don't know how resilient the earth is and, and what people will do. Um, but I think that we're just dealing with things that we've never dealt with before technologically. Um, there was, can I, I'm going to go on a tangent for just a second. Go man. Yeah. Um, so there was a brain researcher named Joseph Chilton Pierce, um, who's also like a really devoted spiritual student. And, he has this awesome lecture called the roots of intelligence. And, and we, we now know that this way of understanding the brain isn't really true, but it at least gets at some type of archetypal truth, even if it's not literally true. 
So he was really operating back in the 70s and 80s on this idea that we we're only using, you know, at the most 5% of our brains. And he's like, look at what we do with 5% of our capacity. You know, what would it look like if, if with the way that we treat each other in the planet, we had 100% of the capacity? Um, we would just wreck each other. We'd wreck this place so fast. And so he believed that there was like an evolutionary failsafe uh, in brain development that before the intelligence of the heart was awakened, we couldn't awaken the, the full like intelligence of the intellect and the, and the, and the mind. And, and he really believed he saw evidence of that in, in the fact that we didn't use as much of our brain. And, the, and more, more current science says it's not, that's not quite true. You can't really think of it that way. And I really believe that the archetype is true. I do believe in a great capacity of human beings that's much far beyond like what we've seen. Um, and I don't trust us with having more power. Um, I don't trust our, un our understanding of relationship and our place on the planet and in the cosmos and with each other. Um, we're just speeding towards a cliff, uh, ecologically. And, um, and so I don't have a lot of faith that it turns out okay. And my job is to bear myself to the questions and to what I think my part could be as best I can, as fully as I can with all of that urgency um, and all of that devotion and, and just give it. Um, so there was a spiritual leap for me because for years, my belief that it didn't turn out okay kept me from being able to act and engage and create and build and work on myself and, and throw myself towards purpose. Um, and then there was just some sort of a shift where it's like, okay, even if it doesn't work out, like I have to do this because it's what I'm made to do. And it's, it's the most I can give. That's amazing. It feels like deeply spiritual, like, a uh, because I would have to convince myself that things were going to work out. That's the, that's <laughs> no, things are going to be great. It's going to be yeah. awesome, <laughs> you know, but I can mm -hmm. see the power in what you're saying. It's like, you know, you're saying I'm not optimistic. However, I don't know. It could all work out. Nevertheless, I'm here and I'm going to give my best. Like that feels really good and it feels honest and it feels true to who you are. And there's a lot of integrity in that. I did my, my senior uh, project in undergrad in psychology on optimism, <laughs> pessimism, and things like that. And yeah. so it's like a little pet side project for me. Right. Like I, if you really study optimism, people who score really high in optimism have like overinflated perceptions of themselves and others yeah, and, and way, way overestimate <laughs> success and um, are really not actually like in tune with reality. But it's freaking weird because biologically optimists are healthier. They live longer. They have more friends. So it's weird. Like evolution is like if you believe accurately, you're going to be less healthy, have less friends. Like it kind of, <laughs> life kind of rewards you for being out of touch with, quote, reality. Yeah. And so um, that's really curious to me. But uh, yeah, but for me where I'm at, I don't think it's going to turn out great. And I, I, I want to give everything I have to human creation and potential. And like w the end result is irrelevant. It's, it's like how I bear myself in this moment. And um, yeah. Yeah, there's the one uh, scientist, I, I'm blanking on his name. You may have seen his TED talk. He's been making the rounds where he says, seeing reality for as it is has no evolutionary advantage. <laughs> right. 
Like we're not, right. there's no fitness. Mm. Like we, we evolve for fitness. Like, so we're going to see reality to make us as fit as we can be for survival. And there's absolutely no, which makes sense. You know, we have all of these biases, these cognitive biases, uh, you know, kind of shortcuts in our thinking. And I, I saw an interview with, um, uh, the guy who wrote thinking fast and slow, his name I'm also blanking on, but, um, he, he just has no hope for humans to, to see reality, including himself. Like he's like, I, I can't overcome my own biases. I just, I just can't do it. And he's a scientist. It's like, he's just like everything we live, we live in an illusion. And there was something about that. It was very disconcerting, obviously, but it's just, it's kind of what human beings are. And, you know, and also if you just look around at the world and maybe this is part of the reason why you don't feel uh, very optimistic, human beings are not rational. Like just look around, it's madness everywhere you go. And the most intelligent people saying the craziest things like your, your, your IQ has no bearing on, uh, your ability to see things as they are. And that, that is something that I've woken up to. I guess I had this idea that the, the elders, the, the, the wise people, they knew what the hell was going on. And now that I'm like, 50 i'm like nobody nobody knows what's going on here nobody's got this figured out everybody is literally making it up as they go back to that joseph chilton pierce lecture for the sake of discussion of ideas he differentiates between intelligence and intellect Uh and and i wish i could remember the the beautiful way he described it but intellect was something more it always asks can we do this you know is this possible it, it, it's just so obsessed with achievement and accomplishment and what's possible. And intelligence actually is that in service of something. It really understands right. the whole constellation of energy here. You don't just do something because you can. You really have to understand the impact and, and what is the impact of this decision and should I do this? And is it really serving of life in the whole organism to do this? So there's some sort of shift where that type of, like you said, these IQs can be amazing. Similarly, it's like they have great intelligence, but it's not guided by anything super wise. And so how do we have the brilliance that's guided also by some type of like wisdom that gives that brilliance a place to go? And so like, that's what I'm interested in. How do you wake that up? How do you wake that up? Well, and I, I think about that a lot too. And then I watch Elon Musk talking about artificial intelligence and the neural <laughs> net going into the brain and how they're going to cure depression, you right. know, with a phone on your app, you press it and it gives a little stimulation to your oh, brain. God. He's talking about giving people their sight back and hearing. Right. I mean, bion- I you're going to have bionic interview. arms and yeah. all that stuff. So there's something about that that feels like we're already, as he said, we're, we're already part cyborg. We're all on some level integrated with our phones attached to our phones and that that's just going to get deeper and deeper and that we're in the process of evolving into some new species really that's integrated with technology. I mean, that's the the thesis of Yuval Harari's book, uh, Homo Deus. And, and that just throws a wrench in everything. And in that sense, I am, I guess, optimistic or, or pessimistic because it, it's like, well, if that keeps going where it's going, it, where, what is this? Are we, is it the end of Homo sapiens? Is it, is it the end and, and we're going to evolve into something else? Which would make sense 
you know, that we're not the last stop in evolution. Like we would go to something else, but it's a little bit scary. And I also wonder if that's part of what is going on in the culture, the technology is uh, advancing so rapidly. How can we not be anxious about that? Here's the the way technology doesn't inherently freak me out, but it does in terms of I, I don't often see it being in relationship with the larger web of life. And it, it really separates human beings. It really amplifies us being pulled out of this matrix of a, of a bigger web. And I think that that's inherently that's going to be self-destructive. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it ultimately it's like, if you look at a narcissistic personality, you know, it's like, I, you know, that's to me what drives a lot of like the, if I'm fi- being philosophical, um, the thing that guides technology is like, how can I become the most powerful thing I can, the least, the least dependent possible, the most uh, out of relationship possible. How can I just be a, an autonomous existing thing with all of my wildest needs, wants, and desires met? I mean, that's narcissism. I'm a psychologist, so like, I think about yeah. it that way. We're we're evolving towards a culture that's like that, and and it will rise to power and it will self destruct. Um, I'm just I don't like that it takes the planet with it. But and I mean that's what a lot of narcissists do. You know, they'll they'll take everybody down with them. Um, and so I, I think it's an archetypal pattern that exists in individuals and in cultures, and we've got it in the culture, and they, we've we've given it rocket fuel with technology, and that freaks me out. Maybe if technology could be guided by like a larger intelligence of like really being in service to life, um, then I, I'd be more open there, but it freaks me out. Do you feel like on the fringes of things, like you're a little bit on the outside, old school, oh, yeah. like, you, yeah. you know, you... How, how yeah. is that for you? You know, wilderness guy, you're in Boulder, Colorado. And I can even imagine in Boulder, you don't no. quite fit no. in. Boulder Boulder are people that like to go outside to like mountain bike. They're right. not people of the wild. They're not, they're not people that know what plants are around them while they're mountain biking through them. You know, they're not farming. They're not um, making plant medicines. They're not um, engaged in any kind of relationship with place, like in, in a deeply meaningful way. You know, they might in a romantic sense of like Walt Whitman, like I love the mountains, I'm moved by the water and by the landscape, but like real relationship to place, like Boulder doesn't have that. No one here does. It's a very floaty, like intellectual uh, place, doesn't have a lot of roots uh, spiritually and energetically. Do you have so. roots? I mean, I, it sounds like you're <laughs> separate from your family. It's separate, but just different yeah. than your family. You've moved away. They're from the South, and now you're in yeah. Boulder. Are I, you I, rooted? Uh, ish. I think more than most people I know. My family's uh-huh. actually awesome. Um, they rooted me in such amazing values, and and I, I just deepened where they left off. You know, it's it's like it's not like they... The good thing about my family is they didn't take me on a whole lot of there's a lot of good things, but they didn't take me on any wild tangents or like give me a whole bunch of craziness to deal with. They, they did take me really far. And, and then I just took it. I just picked up where they left off and, um, rooted. Yeah. I mean, I have relationships, friendships, mentorships, places that really, um, speak to me and, and I am, and I have connections with, and, um, I don't, I am at the fringe. I am at the fringe, and that's weird that I'm at the fringe because I feel like 
Um, relatively speaking, I'm a pretty front country dude, but, um, yeah, you know, like I'm still, I'm the dude that people call when they find a roadkill deer and they're like, there's one on 36, you know, come get it. And so I'll go and, you know, get the meat and skin it and tan the hide. And Well, it's a, it's a, it's a lonely path, the, the path that you're on a little bit. I mean, it, by definition, you're going inside, you're facing yourself. Like there's nobody there. Other people have similar experiences, but ultimately, you know, we, we, we all, if we're going to do this work, we, we have to face that and, and face our aloneness in it. We can still stay connected, but there's some, it is, I think ultimately that's, that's what I've come to. It's, it can be a lonely path. It doesn't mean we have to be alone. And also being a, a psychotherapist holding space for uh, a person or for a group, that's also lonely because you're not really in relationship with them exactly. They, they're, you're, they're transferring onto you. You're holding something for them. And there's, I just noticed that there's something about that, that I, I enjoy the, uh, the, the, the challenge that it is. Uh, and I, I, I get, I notice that a lot of my growth comes through it. Like I get a lot out of it because I'm challenged and I have to face myself, but also it can be when I, especially when I run my workshops, it can be lonely because they're all having a great time. <laughs> you know, even at sacred sons and all those guys, but you, you kind of, it's your job. You have to stay a little separate from it. Do you ever feel that? You know, it is a little different. I would say I used to feel a lot more lonely. I really felt what you did or that you were describing. I felt really lonely doing the work. I felt like um, I didn't have mentors. I didn't have people that really would go those places with me. Um, and honestly, that's changed a lot. The cool thing about Sacred Sons is that it's not um, a, a cult of personality. It's not built around it's not, you know, we're all the followers of Tony Robbins or something. It's about the network. It's about the network. And, and I'm very nourished by that network. And it's just a different way of being where you're not, like I remember a quote from Carl Jung talking about that kind of loneliness when he would interpret other people's dreams. He's like, I don't have a Jung to help me with myself. You know, like, yeah, I know, I know I carry a brilliance that's unparalleled in the world. And because I can't receive my own brilliance, you know, there's a loneliness and a sadness and a grief in that. And, um, and I can relate to that on some level, you yeah. know, like when I, when I'm facilitating some of this experiential group work that we do, uh, I'm like, gosh, I, I do want this. Um, but I think that's why I give it in a way. And, and I, I experienced that loneliness less because back to the archetypal piece, I feel like what I'm doing with my clients is I'm supporting them in connecting to the same archetypal sources of energy that that I'm connected to and that I don't own and that are theirs to freely go to and and I there's enough meaning woven into my work that the loneliness level goes down and I have found my way to a group of friends at this point in life by luck and perseverance where you know I feel pretty held um enough there's definitely spiritual terrain that I surf in and like, I feel pretty alone in that. But at this point, it's okay. It's okay. Because I, I think I have, I have some amazing connections that I'm nourished enough to thrive and be vibrant. 
I get the feeling that you have a very deep philosophy that is you're still developing and is finding its expression, but that I, I just have this feeling, oh, this guy's going to write a book or something's going to come out of you. Like you have a lot to say. I can, I just feel that. Does that resonate with you? I, I hope so. I mean, I, I don't know what way I give right now. It's really taking shape. Like I said, I think it takes years for me to know what it is that I give. Um, but I have started to have faith in my bag of ingredients that whatever <laughs> soup I cook one day is going to be damn good. Yeah. Um, I think I've got some really rad stuff floating in that bag of, of harvesting. And, um, and yeah, people do ask, people ask, have asked me to write about some of the things that I teach and work with. And other people have asked me to teach the type of facilitation I do. And I mean, I'm, I'm young, I'm 37. I think to be really in that role, giving that way, the honest truth is I need to cook for longer. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a little suspicious of the like coaching world where, you know, 25 year olds tell me how to live my best life and they're just like ultra attractive and have never had a job. And, um, I think there's something to be said. The place that I want to speak from requires me to grow further and it, it's going to take a while and I, I've got to be patient in like giving what I have to give. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little bit more given to that long trajectory now of ripening. But yeah, I, I hope there's something rad, like some books and, you know, art, some art and or some teaching training. Yeah, it'll come. Yeah, no, I can, I can, uh, I can feel it. I can feel that you have something to say and I would certainly, uh, send people your way. I mean, <laughs> Thanks, David. well, you just have a, there's a lot of set. You feel like an old school, uh, gentleman, you know, but, but who's also, I can feel your killer. Like, you know, I, I I'm, it's like, I, I trust you. I give, Hey, can you hold on to this million dollars? You know, it's like, I trust you. Uh, can you, take care of my wife. Cause I got to go out, you know? And it's like, can you uh, stand beside me uh, yeah. in the trenches fighting this war? Thank yeah. You. Like you, you, cover all those bases. So it's, I'm, I'm, you, I'm glad you're out there being a role model to men. And I feel like your dedication to your own, to yourself and to your process and going deep. And I, I also think that like, there's a lot of people want to go deep. Like, I think there's a call yeah. for people to go yeah. like, you know what? It, because it's needed we we got to get in there and do the work so i guess i'm just i'm uh, you know it's great to talk to you and to feel you and to hear what you have to say and um i'm excited about you know just where you're going and i'll be paying attention and following you thanks so, david appreciate it yeah man appreciate thanks it. for the conversation thanks so much i'm honored mm -hmm.